From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, National Review Senior Editor Richard Brookheiser joins me to discuss his new book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. John Marshall was the longest serving Chief Justice in the history of the Supreme Court. Through his 34 years on the court, he was instrumental in shaping the relationship between the three branches of government and the court's role in what would be known as the American Experiment. My guest, author and historian Richard Brookheiser, senior editor at the National Review, is no stranger to tackling. America's Founding Architects. Among his books include works about James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington. We at the Public Morality are honored to be among the first interviews that he's granted for his latest offering, John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court. This is an erudite but accessible text that gives further insight into the formulation and quest of that more perfect union. Richard Brookheiser, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You've written about George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Abraham Lincoln, among others. Was writing about John Marshall a natural progressive for you, or were there other factors that caused you to uh, pursue this text? Well, I think it was a natural progression because the man that John Marshall most admired in the world with the possible exception of his own father, was the father of his country. Uh, Marshall volunteered to fight in the Revolution when he was 20 years old in 1775. Uh, He started off as a lieutenant. He ultimately became a captain. And he fought uh, under Washington at the battles of Brandywine and Germantown, which were around Philadelphia in 1777. He was with Washington that winter at Valley Forge. He fought under him in another battle the following year at Monmouth. And Washington was the most impressive figure of his young life. He called him that superior man. He called him the greatest man on earth. Uh, He'd seen Washington in command. He thought he was the rock on which the revolution rested. And he aspired to have that calmness and firmness and force of character all his life. He also shared Washington's political convictions. He, he thought Washington correctly diagnosed the problems that the American government had during the Revolution. It was unable to properly clothe its soldiers, properly supply them, certainly unable to pay them. And both Commander-in-Chief Washington and Captain Marshall thought that there needed to be a stronger, more capable government Uh, Washington, of course, uh, supported the new Constitution in 1787. He attended the Constitutional Convention. He presided over it. He signed it. And John Marshall attended the Virginia Ratifying Convention. When 
the state had to approve or disapprove it, and he was a supporter of the Constitution at that ratifying convention. So he's tracking Washington politically at a, at a much more junior level. And when the first American two-party system uh, arises in the Washington administration, both Washington and he become federalists. And they're the party of a, a strong foreign policy, a, a government uh, strong enough to uh, carry out its functions, and a government that's in favor of uh, economic growth and diversification. And these are policies that, that Marshall would uh, feel were sanctioned by the Constitution and that he would endorse when he's Chief Justice. Uh, since, since you mentioned that, that relationship between Washington and Marshall and Marshall's strong feelings, which is how you start your book, uh, I'm just curious, any thoughts about Marshall's work on George Washington? Well, that's right, yes. The only, the only book he ever writes is not a legal book. Uh, he doesn't try to write a commentary on the laws of the United States. That's something that a lot of jurists did. But the only book John Marshall ever writes is a biography of George Washington. And he, he begins it a few years after Washington dies. Washington left all his papers to one of his nephews, a man named Bushrod Washington, who also happened to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, he was an associate justice while Marshall was chief justice. And the two of them uh, cooked up a plan to write a biography of Bushrod's famous uncle. But um, Bushrod bailed out of the project as an author because his eyesight was, was very weak. He didn't have sight in one of his eyes, and this would require a lot of reading of documents. So Marshall took it on. And he produced uh, quite a long biography. It's uh, five volumes. The first volume is about the discovery and early history of colonial America, so Washington doesn't even get born until the beginning of volume two. And uh, I have to say, it's not the greatest biography in the world. It's a little stiff, but there are, there are certain things that Marshall does very well. He covers the war very well. And when he gets around to the political fights of the Washington administration, he's, he's remarkably fair, considering how partisan he himself was. He, he gives a very fair account of Jefferson and Hamilton's clash over Washington's financial program, even though he's completely on Hamilton's side. But this is, um, this is the only uh, book he ever wrote and the only man he ever thought worth writing about. So let's go back uh, to some of the formative years. Um, what was Marshall's life growing up in, in Virginia? Well, he's growing up. It's not quite the frontier. He, he, his, the first house he lives in is a log cabin. Uh, the next one uh, has actual glass in its windows. So we're not, you know, we're not talking about uh, Daniel Boone out in the, in the wilderness, but it's, it's close to it. His father, Thomas, was a land speculator, uh, a sort of a big man in his local neighborhood. Uh, he served in the House of Burgesses, which was the colonial legislature. And Thomas had a big family. John was the oldest child. And Thomas wanted his sons to be lawyers. About uh, five or six of them ended up being lawyers. They were mostly homeschooled. John was uh, sent 
uh, away to uh, eastern Virginia to go to a school for a brief period. But most of his education he got at home, and he got it from his father. And one of the one of the books he read at home was a, a book by an Englishman, William Blackstone, which was called The Commentaries on the Laws of England. And this was uh, a very popular book, both in England and America. It seemed to sum up the history of English law up to the middle of the 18th century. And a lot of that got carried over to the colonies and even to the United States when it became independent. And Blackstone is very well organized, very easy to understand. So he was a, a common, almost a textbook in how to get your feet wet in the law, how to learn the law and what it is and what it involves. And this, so this is something John uh, reads at home. Now, he does take one course in law. This is when he's um, serving as a captain in the Revolution. He takes a furlough to take uh, a course in law at William and Mary from a man named George Wyth. And Wyth was, was probably one of the top legal minds uh, in early America. He taught Thomas Jefferson the law. Uh, he gave this course in law at William and Mary. He was the first law professor in in the new country, and uh, Marshall was his student for one course. One so, of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, right. <laughs> He's a signer of the Declaration. Right. So if you're, I guess, if you're only going to take one course in law in your life, taking a course from George Wythe is, is probably the best you can do. Yeah, I was going to say if you have one guy, uh, <laughs> that that that'd be my choice. Uh, now, you also note that uh, early on in the text that uh, Marshall would spend most of his adult life in cities, but he maintained that small-town country taste. And uh, did you find in any areas while serving in the Supreme Court that that, that sort of small-town uh, ethos stayed with Marshall in some of his legal uh, decisions? Well, not in his legal decisions so much as in his manner. Okay. Uh, he had a, he had a very the word that comes up over and over again when people are trying to describe this man is simple. I mean, this despite his uh, his great intellect and his great knowledge of the law, but in terms of his behavior, how he was with people, he was simple. Uh, he never cared how he dressed. He was a slob all his life. Um, his wife cut his hair. If it hadn't been for her, probably wouldn't have been cut. Uh, he he was a genial man. Uh, one one of the uh, a lawyer who later joined the Supreme Court said, "I love his laugh." And Marshall always always loved a good drink. Uh, one of the customs of the Supreme Court when he uh, when he joins it in 1801 is that when the justices deliberate together after they've they've heard the cases during the day then they go back to the boarding house they're all staying in and they talk about it over dinner and afterwards they had a custom that they could only have wine if it was raining and i, I assume this was to cheer themselves up otherwise not so when marshall's chief justice he always asks one of his colleagues uh, often just a story brother story you know look out the window tell us what the weather is you know, and Story might say, well, the sky is perfectly clear, and Marshall would say, our jurisdiction is so vast that it must be raining somewhere. <laughs> so wine was always served to the Marshall court. And it's, 
you know, it's it's this relaxed manner, this genial manner that he had. Uh, he'd also defer to his fellow justices. If there was some area of law in which one of them was more expert than he was, for instance, land titles. Uh, a lot of cases involving land titles came up through the courts and even to the Supreme Court uh, because, you know, America's expanding westwards and the surveying is not... You know, it's complicated. It's not so accurate. So a lot of, you know, a lot of this ends up in court. Some of it comes to the Supreme Court. It's not Marshall's area, but he had a colleague whose area it was. So he would defer to this, to this man. And of course, when you do that, you get deference in turn. You know, and this is the way Marshall herds all these cats. He, uh, you know, he, he respects them and they respect him in return. Uh you you'd mentioned Thomas Jefferson earlier and, and the connection that um, Marshall and Jefferson had with, with George With, uh, but they were also cousins who didn't necessarily get along. Uh, that's putting it. That's putting it very kindly. Well, th- that that's my softball sort of lobbing it to you, and just I like to have you sort of expand on what was their real point of contention for disagreement. Well, they were second cousins once removed. Uh, Jefferson was the older man. He's um, he's uh, uh, 12 years older than Marshall is. And John Marshall really didn't hate people, but he did hate Thomas Jefferson. And I think Jefferson hated more people than Marshall did, and he certainly hated Marshall. The problems started in the Washington administration when Jefferson is Washington's Secretary of State. And from Marshall's point of view, you know, looking at this from outside the administration as a, as a young Federalist, and Washington is the first president, his idol, also leader of the Federalist Party. And he sees Jefferson as Secretary of State basically stabbing the president in the back, you know, staying in the administration but disagreeing with its foreign policy. You know, and this has to do with the wars of the French Revolution and what role should America take, um, which side should it favor. Uh, Jefferson is very pro-French. Washington wants to be hands-off. And if you diss George Washington, that's 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 it for George Marshall. I mean, you are just on his blacklist uh, forever, basically. So that's the beginning of it. Then, of course, uh, Marshall becomes Chief Justice at the tail end of John Adams's administration. Uh, this is uh, February of 1801. And then Thomas Jefferson is inaugurated president in March of 1801 because he's won the election of 1800. So here... Um, John Marshall is the Chief Justice. He administers the oath of office to the new president, Thomas Jefferson. And he's just waiting for sparks, which which they do happen. Um, the, the first thing is that uh, Jefferson's uh, friends in Congress, uh, Jefferson's party has a majority in both houses of Congress. It was a, a blue wave. Uh, the first Republican Party swept everything. And they decide to shrink the federal judiciary. Uh, they decide to get rid of some newly created circuit court uh, judges, uh, bring it back to uh, its former size that it had earlier. Uh, there's some 
question whether this was constitutional because judges are supposed to serve for good behavior. You know, you, you can't get rid of a federal judge unless he commits some sort of crime. But if you're shrinking the federal judiciary, you are getting rid of federal judges because you're getting rid of their jobs. So does that, does that mean you're violating the Constitution? Uh, now, the, the Supreme Court, um, under Marshall's guidance, decided to accept this. Uh, Marshall polled his fellow justices. He said, what do you think of this? And they, the majority of them said, we, we, have to, we have to lie back and let this happen. So that's what they, they all agreed to do. Uh, so that's step one. That's a victory for Jefferson. Then the next thing his allies in Congress decide to do is to start impeaching federal judges. Uh, they begin with a, a district court judge in New Hampshire who's actually lost his mind, the poor man, and uh, they got rid of him by impeaching him in the House and convicting him in the Senate. Then they moved to one of the justices of the Supreme Court, a man named Samuel Chase, uh, who was very smart, uh, very contentious, very out-there personality, uh, had gotten himself in a lot of political hot water by being very political on the bench, and he is impeached by the House and tried by the Senate. And Marshall and his colleagues and really everybody in political Washington believes that if Chase is removed, they're just going to go right through the whole Supreme Court, clean them out. Chase is not convicted. Uh, he's not convicted partly because he defends himself well and he has a team of good lawyers defending him partly because the uh, managers of the prosecution on the House side uh, were not lawyers themselves and they did a bad job. I think also just because there was a reluctance to, imply, to apply the impeachment tool as a means for cleaning out the Supreme Court. So Chase survives and then, and then that's the end of it. They don't try to impeach anybody else. Well, then the third way in which Jefferson and Marshall clash is Jefferson figures, I can just appoint new justices when old ones die or retire. So uh, two of Marshall's colleagues uh, leave the court when Jefferson is president, and then Congress also decides to increase the size of the court by one justice because the country is growing. The country is expanding westward. So they, they add another justice that goes from six to seven. So Jefferson gets to a point three justices to the Supreme Court. And then after he's president, his best friend James Madison is president for eight years, he gets to appoint two more. So the partisan balance on the court goes from six Federalists to two Federalists and five Republicans. Big switch. But what happens is that Marshall converts all these Republicans. You know, they get on the court, and lo and behold, they become friendly with him. Uh, they agree with him, not just that, uh, it's partly that they like him, but it's also that they they um, bow to the force of his reasoning, and they sign off on his decisions. So, uh, so Jefferson, you know, in retirement, becomes more and more frustrated with this. And you read his correspondence, really going right up to uh, almost to his death in 1826, and there's just one letter after the other about how. You know how Marshall is um, 
uh, he he twists everything. Uh, Marshall can't be trusted. You know, you never dare answer any question Marshall asks you because he will turn it into some legal argument that he wants. I mean, Jefferson even tells one man, he says, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't answer Marshall if Marshall asked me if the sun were shining. I would say, I don't know, sir. I can't tell. <laughs> because he'd take whatever you said, you know, turn it around. This is this is Jefferson's great uh, fear. So it's an animosity he has that he never surrenders, and Marshall never surrenders his animosity to Jefferson. I mean, after Jefferson dies, he, he writes one letter, and he this is the first ed- edition of Jefferson's letters has come out, three years after Jefferson's dead. And Marshall says, you know, look, every good good idea he ever had was an idea that everybody else had, and every idea that he only had all to himself was crazy. So <laughs> that was his judgment of Thomas Jefferson. Hitch, your, Hitch um, how you started this, com- this part of the conversation was, I was putting it mildly when I said they didn't get along. Uh, <laughs> So politics in the court is not new. Right. I mean, that's the lesson for us today. It's been going on a long time. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Richard Brookheiser, senior editor of the National Review, historian, journalist, and author. And we're discussing his latest book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, Richard, one of the things uh, that, that you also cite, you said prior to Marshall, you described the position of Chief Justice uh, of the Supreme Court as being, quote, uh, a job that lacked dignity. Yes, and those, those aren't my words. Those are the words of the first man to hold that job. That was John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the Court from 1789 to 1795. Then he, he, he leaves the court to run for governor of New York. Now think about that a little. Do you, do we think that John Roberts is going to leave the Supreme <laughs> Court to run for governor of wherever he's from? Of course not. Who would imagine such a thing? This is what John Jay does. And then, in 1801, when the third Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a man named Oliver Ellsworth, he's in bad health, so he writes President John Adams, I'm quitting. I'm going to have to find somebody else. And Adams decides to give the job again to John Jay. He nominates him. The Senate confirms him. Then he gets a letter from Jay saying, sorry, I'm not going to go back to that job. And it's in that letter that Jay says the job lacks dignity. Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that the court was not well regarded. It didn't seem to be doing very much of importance. And also, Justices of the Supreme Court in those days had to ride circuit. They had to also serve as circuit judges. And the circuits were huge. You know, they they were hundreds of miles long. We're talking about 18th century and then early 19th century America. And the roads are terrible. You know, you can just imagine and where you had to stay and, and all the rest of it. And Jay was just sick of it. So he declined the chance to be Chief Justice again, even though the Senate had confirmed him. Well, the, what, what Marshall is able to change here, a couple things. One thing is Marshall stays there for 34 years. He's Chief Justice from 1801 to 1835. In the 11 years before him, there were three Chief Justices. But then he serves by himself for 34 years. 
because of his intelligence and his geniality, he is able to write half the decisions that the Supreme Court hands down. Those are opinions that he himself writes. Many of them, many of them are unanimous. He conveys an impression of the court as a united, authoritative voice. And the third thing is that in his decisions, he establishes the court's authority to overrule, uh, to, to strike down a provision of a law passed by Congress if they think it's unconstitutional. He establishes their authority to overturn decisions of state courts, which he believes are unconstitutional. And he also is able, on a couple of occasions, to read little lectures to the president when he thinks the president has misbehaved. I mean, this doesn't, this doesn't take the form of you know, a legal rebuke, but he's writing a decision such that he is clearly telling the president, in one case Jefferson, later on Andrew Jackson, that what you are doing uh, is, is wrong. So he's making the Supreme Court a peer of Congress and of the president, which it hadn't been in the 11 years before him. You, you mentioned that a lot of his decisions during that period were 9 nothing, and it made me think about uh, the—it's been well documented, the work that Earl Warren did during Brown versus Board of Education because he felt that that needed to be a 9 nothing ruling. Uh, did, did Marshall work behind the scenes in a larger context? Oh, yes. Yes, he does. We have— you know, we have testimony from one of his fellow justices. This was a man that Jefferson appointed, a man named William Johnson. And he, you know, he goes along with Marshall a lot, but he probably frets about it more than anyone else. And he, uh, he, he, he actually has a, a correspondence with, with Jefferson after he's been on the court for a number of years. And, and he tells Jefferson, you know, when I got on the court, I, I thought that, you know, I would just issue my own opinions. If, if, I, if I agreed with the majority of my brethren, I'd write an opinion in which I said so. If I disagreed, I'd dissent. But I was constantly getting lectures from my fellow justices that, you know, you shouldn't do this. This diminishes our authority if, if, you're, if you're, you know, doing your own concurrence or if you're dissenting. So I bowed to the current. So there was social pressure within the Marshall Court for people to stick together, unless they had a serious disagreement. Uh, also, it's um, you know it's it's also the force of Marshall's mind. Uh, one of the lawyers who argued before the Supreme Court, a man named William Wirt, who later became Attorney General, he said Marshall's mind was like the ocean. Everybody else's minds were like ponds. So mm. that was that that was the impression that Marshall's reasoning made on his. Uh, on his legal peers. And then the third thing is what you mentioned, that Marshall is very politic. Uh, there are times when you can see he's constructing decisions very carefully in order to, you know, to herd the cats again, to get people who might otherwise disagree uh, under the tent. So he's, he's, he's maybe not being as out there as he, as he otherwise might if he were writing it all alone, all by himself, but he knows he's got he's got six colleagues and he's got to think about them. So he he kind of broadens the the parameters of what he's saying to make sure he can um, get them all to sign off on it. 
Now, one also, one also gets the sense in those early chapters that you write that, that while the Supreme Court, as it is articulated in, this, in the Constitution, uh, is, a, is a co-equal branch, uh, that wasn't necessarily the, the case, at least the, the way it was viewed, at least by those who were involved. And if, if that is true, if my assessment is true, my question to you, sir, does Marbury v. Madison change that? Or begin to change that. Well, it's it's part of the process. I think, um, you know, what I would say about Marbury, and this is the one time, this is an 1803 decision, and and Marshall rules that that William Marbury, who who is asking to be made a justice of the peace in the District of Columbia, so this is a federal matter because the federal government runs the affairs of the District of Columbia. And he'd gotten a commission at the tail end of the Adams administration, and it hadn't been personally delivered to him. It had been left sitting on a desk. And then when Jefferson came in, he said, well, too bad. They didn't send this thing out. I'm not going to do it. So Marbury doesn't get his commission. Then Marbury sues sues to get it, and he asks the court uh, to issue a particular kind of writ. And uh, he bases this on the, the law that set the court up in 1789, which said, this is the Judiciary Act of 1789, and said that the court had the power to issue this kind of writ. Well, Marshall writes this long opinion, it's 9,000 words long, and he says that Marbury has a right to his commission, it had been issued, the fact that it was still sitting on a desk doesn't matter, everything had been done, there it was, he has a right to it. Second point, since he didn't get it, he has redress. You know, if you have a right under the American system, the law will offer you redress. We don't have any such thing as um, non-actionable rights. But then the third point is issuing this writ, the form of redress that William Marbury complain, can, can claim. And there Marshall says no, because actually the Supreme Court has no power to issue such writs. It's unconstitutional. And it's kind of complicated reasoning, but but he concludes that the, the original law that set the federal system up in 1789 gave the Supreme Court a power it should not have had. It should not have had the power to issue these kinds of writs in these kinds of suits. So Marshall is, is overturning a law of Congress. Now, this is called judicial review. Did he invent this concept? No, it, it was already out there. Uh, Hamilton had talked about it in the Federalist Papers, that there would be such a thing as judicial review. Marshall himself had talked about it in the Virginia Ratifying Convention when they were talking about the judicial system. Judicial review was a, was a concept that was out there and that people understood. So I don't think that's what's so new about Marbury versus Madison. It's interesting because it's the first time it happens, but it's not as if Marshall is inventing this out of whole cloth. What's more interesting to me about the decision is the lecture that he's basically giving the Jefferson administration saying, you found this commission on the desk when you came in. This was signed, this was sealed, this was ready to go. It was your responsibility to give it to William Marbury, and you failed in that. So he's, you know, he's basically shaking a finger at, uh, at Thomas Jefferson and his administration and saying, you know, you guys didn't do what you should have done. 
One gets the feeling that he he wrote that um, uh, decision joyfully. Uh. <laughs> oh yes, yes. To be able to be able to tell Thomas Jefferson that you behaved badly must have given him great pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, while I, Marbury arguably is the decision that most laypersons are, are are aware of. Uh, you cite others that you consider more important, and um, and I'll just give out two, for example, and have you talk about both of them. Let's start with uh, Fletcher versus Peck. Right, right. Now, Fletcher versus Peck, this is an 1810 decision, and it involves a, a land sale by the state of Georgia. Uh, the state of Georgia originally included everything west of what's now Georgia all the way to the Mississippi. In other words, what's now Alabama and the state of Mississippi were part of Georgia. And uh, Georgia decided in the 1790s, Georgia was broke, just just perennially broke. So they decided in order to raise money, we're going to sell uh, 35 million acres of land, and we're going to sell it for um, a penny and a half an acre. Uh, And there were eager purchasers to buy this because this is this is quite a bargain it turns out that every member of the georgia legislature except one was bribed they all got a thousand dollars uh one guy who who took only six hundred dollars said he, he did it because he wasn't greedy <laughs> so well and so when the word of this got out uh, the people of georgia were upset and they elected an entirely new legislature but then what, what that legislature does is it cancels the sale, and it also says that, that any official of the state who refers to the sale as if it were valid shall be fined $1,000, you know, which is a lot in the 1790s. So they're making it impossible to be brought up in a Georgia court. You know, we're canceling the sale, and by the way, you can't sue us in a Georgia court because we're going to make it impossible for you to do that. Georgia cannot also cannot be sued by people from other states because the 11th Amendment forbids that. It forbids citizens of other states to sue a state. So, but this, the, the original purchasers of this land, why did they buy it? It wasn't that they were going to go live on it themselves. They bought it to resell it. You know, we're, we're getting it on the ground floor, then we're going to flip it. Uh, this is real estate, you know. This has been going on in America forever, and still goes on. So they they flipped their original sale, and a lot of the purchasers were in New England. So the 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 lawsuit arises because there are two men, one in Massachusetts, one in New Hampshire, and uh, one of the guys had bought some some of this Georgia land from the other, and then he sued him, saying, "Look, you didn't have." the right to sell me this because Georgia has canceled the sale. Therefore, I want my money back. I gave you $3,000 for this, and you didn't legitimately own it. I want my money back. So the case goes to court, uh, and it ends up in the Supreme Court because it's citizens of different states suing each other, which makes it a matter of federal jurisdiction. One of the men is named Fletcher. The other is named Peck. So the case is Fletcher versus Peck. So what Marshall rules on this case, and it's interesting, he follows a legal opinion that had been written back in the 1790s by Alexander Hamilton when he was a lawyer in private practice. And the original purchasers of the Georgia deal had gone to Hamilton after Georgia repealed it to get his legal opinion. What, what, is, what is our status now? 
And Hamilton had said, well, uh, if this comes to court, you will probably win because the Constitution has a contracts clause. It forbids the states from violating the, uh, the obligation of contracts. And Hamilton was very familiar with that clause because he was probably the man responsible for putting it in the Constitution. Uh, so now we're in 1810. There finally has been a case, and it has gotten to the Supreme Court, and Marshall follows Hamilton's reasoning. He says there is, there is a contracts clause in the Constitution. He even goes further. He says this is a bill of rights for the people of the states. The fact that, that, that the Constitution forbids states from violating the obligation of contracts, this is the bill of rights. Now, we read that now, and it's kind of startling, because we all think of the Bill of Rights as the first ten amendments, you know, freedom of speech, no establishment of religion, um, no unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, right to keep and bear arms, all those provisions. But Marshall is saying, my Bill of Rights is the provision of the Constitution that forbids states from violating the obligation of contracts. So, in other words, he rules uh, for the validity of the original sale and, and therefore for the, the title that the subsequent purchasers have. It's legitimate. Hmm. And why is, Marshall so, why is Marshall so keen on that? Well, he saw after the Revolution there was a lot of lawmaking in America, and it was very reckless, and it went back and forth. And, you know, people would say, well... Let's have a debt law where, um, you know, you can, uh, you can pay back a debt you owe, but you don't have to pay the full 100%. You can, you know, you can maybe pay it back for less. Or maybe you don't have to pay your debts at all. Or maybe you can, you know, take forever to pay them back. And, and there was a lot of this kind of stuff and a lot of back and forth. And he just thought it was a chaotic situation. If you made a contract, you couldn't be sure that it would stand. You know, you'd put something down in black and white, but, but too bad. The legislature would, would, would come along and erase it. So to him, it was very important that the Constitution had put a stop to states doing this. And that's, that's what he um, asserts in Fletcher versus Peck. Mm. Uh, I'm about to do something that's probably sacrilege to the Marshall and Jefferson camps, respective, and so my apologies in advance. I'm going to start this next question by asking you, demonstrating something they both had in common. Um, <laughs> uh, but they both, uh, and this is about slavery, they both in their, in their early years as attorneys represented mixed race slaves pro bono in the quest of their emancipation. And so is this, Marshall did it, Jefferson did it with Samuel Howell, is this reflective in your view of the complexity of slavery as an issue where, where one could conceivably see it intellectually as a violation uh, of nature's law while simultaneously be becoming, dare I say, a slave to the social mores? Well, uh, certainly Marshall's record on this is depressing. You know, for years and years, every biography that was written of him said he owned 10 or 12 slaves. You know, that was the figure you saw over and over again, and these were described as house slaves, you know, domestic servants you'd have around the house. Those were his slaves. 
But there was a book that uh, I, I, I'm glad that I was able to take advantage of. I, I may be the first uh, biographer to be able to do that by a man named Paul Finkelman. Uh, and he looked, uh, he did a careful look at the records, and he found that John Marshall, uh, over his life, had 130 to 150 slaves. He was a consistent buyer of slaves. Uh, he had farm properties in Virginia in a couple of counties um, around Richmond, where, which is where he, he mostly lived. And they were worked by slaves. Uh, he gave some of these farms and all the slaves that worked them to various sons of his. Uh, so he was an avid purchaser and a lifelong purchaser. And this is this is one of the things that he does not follow the example of George Washington on. I mean, Washington is a slave owner all his life, but at the end of his life, he writes a will in which he says, my 123 slaves shall be freed at the death of my wife, um, who, who survived him for a couple of years. Marshall doesn't do this. Um, he he offers his... his uh, a man named Robin Spurlock, who was his personal slave. Robin had been his wedding present. His father had given John Marshall Robin as a wedding present. Uh, but when Marshall dies, he says, uh, Robin uh, can be free, and he can get $100 if he'll move to Liberia, which was uh, a new uh, country in Africa that mm. abolitionists in this country had created for freed slaves. So if he if he crosses the Atlantic Ocean, he'll he'll be free and he gets a hundred dollars. If he leaves the state of Virginia, uh, he can get fifty dollars. Uh, or if he wants to stay home, he can choose which of my descendants he will be the slave of. Now, Robin Spurlock at this point is in his seventies. Right, so he's not going to go to Liberia in his seventies. He's not going to leave the state of Virginia. He wants to stay where he is. So his great gift from his uh, late master is he gets to choose uh, who he wishes to be enslaved to, and he, he picks uh, Marshall's daughter. So this is um, this is disappointing. Marshall um, accepted slavery as an institution of positive law. There were some of his rulings on the Supreme Court where. You know, in some in some of the details of it, uh, these are cases uh, involving slaves. He, you know, he he's moderately um, moderately pro the 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 Africans who were involved, but but he never strikes against the the institution itself. He never rules in a way to curtail the institution itself. Uh, not even not even involving the slave trade, which America had had forbidden finally in 1808. But uh, you know, when there are cases involving foreign ships involved in the slave trade, and these are countries which which still are, are engaged in it, like Spain and Portugal, you know, his attitude is, well, you know, we've forbidden it, Britain's forbidden it, but they don't forbid it anymore. So so their slave trading, their slave ships, that's fine. We have to we have to um bow to bow to that reality. So that is a disappointment. That is a disappointment. Well, let me follow up, um, and, and this, this follow-up is, I'm, I'm, I know I'm asking you to speculate, so, uh, but his uh, predecessor, 
uh, Roger Tawney, obviously a note for um, his Dreads. successor. His successor. I mean, success, I said predecessor. I meant successor. I'm sorry. Successor, obviously known for the Dred Scott decision. Uh, uh, do you think, and I'm not talking about the, we, we tend to look at the language that, that Tawney used, that um, no free person or, or enslaved person has, a black person, um, a white man's not bound to respect any of his rights. So throw that aside, do, do you, would you see, could you see Marshall ruling that case any differently than Tawney? Well, the thing about Tawney's ruling is that it was, he was actually uh, false. He, he was distorting the history he claimed to be relying on. You know, Tawney in 1857, he says that uh, uh, no black man, um, certainly not a slave, nor a free black man, can have the rights of a citizen. Because, and he says the reason is because the founding fathers agreed with me. They didn't think uh, that any free black man could enjoy the rights of citizenship. And it was pointed out by one of the dissenting justices on Tawney's court that this, in fact, wasn't true, that when the Constitution was voted on, there were five states, uh, including three slave states, in which free blacks could vote. And since the Constitution was being voted up or down, you know, presumably the free blacks in those states exercised their franchise on the Constitution. So that what Roger Tawney, the Chief Justice, is saying is factually incorrect. Now, Marshall was alive when all this was happening, right? I mean, so he, you know, he would have, he would have known that from his own experience. Virginia wasn't one of those states, but North Carolina was. Uh, so was New York. Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and uh, there's one other that I'm forgetting. I think New Hampshire. So, you know, John Marshall was a well-informed enough man to, to have been aware of that, or, you know, he, he certainly would have acknowledged it if someone had reminded him of it. So he might not have, you know, I don't know how he would have finally ruled on, on whether Dred Scott could be free or not, but I don't, you know, it's hard for me to see him buying that aspect of Roger Tawney's <laughs> argument. Tawney's Roger. Um, the man that you defined, since you, sort of, you just sort of alluded to it, is the last Supreme Court justice that had a living relationship with the Constitution. I, I, I love that sentence, by the way, just as a personal note. Does Marshall's devotion to the Constitution as you saw it or still or see it, does it still permeate the court today? Well, look, this gets us gets us into the politics of the court now, and you know certainly that's that's a great big minefield. Uh, I think it could. I don't see why it can't. I mean, obviously we've got no three hundred year old people alive now, so so there's not going to be anybody who had the kind of personal connection that Marshall had. We'll never have a justice who fought under George Washington. We'll never have a justice who sat in a state ratifying convention. We may, we, we may have some political officials who claim it, though, but we won't, we'll never have it. Yeah. Well, they'll ne <laughs> they'll, right, they'll never have it personally. But, you know, how did Marshall show it in his decisions? I mean, he never said, you know, I'm doing this because I was in the Virginia ratifying convention. He said, here are the words of the Constitution. Um, this is what the framers wrote. They used words in their, you know, normal, intelligible sense. This is what these words mean. Or sometimes he would say, 
here was the uh, situation of the country at the time the Constitution was passed. The framers were worried about this problem, and they designed the Constitution to solve it in this particular way. Now, these are things we can still do, right? I mean, there are the words. We all have dictionaries, and we all have history books. So whether you're looking to the sense of the words or whether you're looking to the history at the time the Constitution was written or the time of its subsequent amendments, you know, because it's been amended over 20 times, but you can examine the histories of all those amendments, I don't see why you can't apply Marshall's methods even though you're not 300 years old. <laughs> uh, finally, this is, this is uh, off this is slightly off the subject, but it's related to, to your area of expertise. I, my Sunday column, I wrote about the difference between nationalism and patriotism. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a friend of mine uh, who is a, a fan of yours, I'll just throw that in as an, oh. as, as, as an addendum. So, Great. Uh, yeah. his, his name is Bob Watson. So Bob wrote me, and he, wanted, he, he knew I was going to interview you. So he wanted, uh, he wanted to, Bob wanted to know whether or not you thought uh, – Alexander Hamilton was a nationalist in the classic definition, so you can direct your answer to Bob. Well, I think, you know, both Hamilton and Marshall and also Washington had a common sense of this as one united country. Now, I'm not going to get into a word fight over whether this is patriotism (laughs) or nationalism, but Marshall, I'll, I'll let Marshall have the last word. He said it was in the revolution that I learned to consider America as my country and my fellow soldiers as my fellow citizens. That was his great bonding experience. When, when Marshall had been through the Revolution, he was no longer just a Virginian. He was an American. And that was something that, that Alexander Hamilton also felt, certainly something that George Washington felt, and something we should all feel today. The book, John Marshall... The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. We've spent this time with its author, Richard Brookheiser, senior editor of the National Review. Thank you, sir, for joining us today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com, just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.